Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Redeemer. Thanks for joining us this morning. As Tyler said, my name is Kevin. Really glad you decided to join us this morning for service. I'm going to take a quick drink out of my tiny cup because I forgot my water bottle, so I hope I don't get thirsty during the sermon. Um, but thank you for being here. As Tyler said, we are continuing to go through uh, the Gospel of Luke, just looking at the life and ministry of Jesus, um, the people he interacts with, the teachings that he, he gives at this time. And um, to kind of start off, I, I want us to imagine something. I want us to imagine what life would have been like in first century Palestine um, during the life and ministry of Jesus. I want us to imagine what life would have been like if, if you and I were just average people at this time in history, in this place of the world, during Jesus' ministry. So if, if this were the case, and, and you were an adult, you would most likely be married, you'd have a spouse, and you'd have kids. Uh, if you were a man, you would be the one working to provide for your family. You would be kind of the head of the family. That's kind of how it was in this society. You'd have social standing. You'd make decisions for your family. You would have been part, if you were the average person, you would have been part of 70% of the population who were struggling farmers, fishermen, or laborers working for other people. You would have earned a single denarius for a normal day's worth of work, and this would have allowed you um, to, to buy food for yourself and your family with just a little bit left over. But ultimately, you and your family, you would be living in poverty. If you were a woman, you would be at home, you would work to, uh, at home to take care of the home, you'd take care of the children, but you wouldn't have much standing in society. And if you were a child at this time, then you would have had no voice whatsoever in the broader society. At this time, there were strong family ties in this culture. A, a fierce loyalty to one's family was just kind of assumed. You had all these different responsibilities to your family, even to your extended family. And so if you were Jewish at this time, you would have believed in the God of Israel. Um, you would have tried to do your best to follow the Old Testament law and to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of your sins in the temple when you could journey and make it to the temple to do that. You would have been tired of living under Roman rule and you would have longed for God to redeem his people. And you ultimately would also would have longed for God's Messiah to come. So imagine that you're this average person. Now also imagine that you encounter Jesus. You, you've heard about his miracles. Maybe you've even seen one of his miracles. You've heard about his teaching on the kingdom of God, and you see how his teaching was different than the scribes and the Pharisees. His teaching had authority. You saw how both the common people, they loved Jesus, but then you saw how the religious leaders, they kind of hated Jesus. His teaching seemed familiar and mostly in alignment with the Hebrew Bible, but he would also say things that sounded strange or extreme. He'd speak in parables that were often perplexing, but ultimately he would always come back to talking about the kingdom of God. That's the rule and the reign of God. He would say to repent of your sins because the kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. He would talk about salvation and eternal life and how you should live if you were in God's kingdom, if you were following God. So if you were this average, ordinary person in first century Palestine, how would you have responded to Jesus? Would you have believed that he was God's Messiah? Would you have trusted in his teaching on the kingdom of God? Would you, would you have followed Jesus, even if it meant sacrifice for you? Or would you have hated Jesus? Would you have thought he was a blasphemer, like some of the Pharisees and others did? Because the reality is, and we see this in the Gospel of Luke, is that Jesus brought the kingdom of God. He taught the truth and the values of the kingdom of God, but the reality was it was also easy to misunderstand him. 
Indeed, the disciples in the Gospels, they seem to constantly be missing Jesus. People who come to Jesus who seem very earnest and sincere as they approach him, they miss Jesus. People misunderstood the eternal life that Jesus offered. They misunderstood how to receive this eternal life. They misunderstood what it meant to live in accordance with the kingdom of God. And so today, as Tyler read, we're going to look at Jesus' encounter with two types of people in the first century in Palestine who could have not have been more different in society. And what Jesus has to say to the people present for these two interactions will ultimately shed light for us today on how we can be sure not to miss Jesus, not to misunderstand him, not to miss the kingdom of God. So let's jump into it. Luke 18, starting off with verses 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter it. So people, parents, are bringing their children to Jesus so that Jesus could pronounce a blessing upon these kids. And it was not uncommon in this culture for parents to ask rabbis to bless their children so that God's favor ultimately would rest upon them. And Jesus, he would frequently lay his hands on people that came to him, especially those who needed healing. He would touch them, lay his hands on them, and heal them. Now, this was significant because Jesus would sometimes come into physical contact with people by laying his hands on them in a socially and religiously taboo way. Like, for example, when Jesus physically laid his hands on a man with leprosy to heal him, because at this time, especially if you were a Jewish person, to touch someone who had leprosy would make you unclean, and you had to do all these ritualistic things. But rather than when Jesus touched this leper to heal him, rather than Jesus becoming unclean, he heals the man and he makes the man clean. So there's significance in Jesus physically touching people as he ministers to them. And so these parents, they're bringing their kids to Jesus. And for some reason, the disciples, they don't like this. And they rebuke these parents for bringing the kids to Jesus. Now, there was a low view of children in this society, kind of as I mentioned before. So maybe the disciples were just kind of going along with societal norms. And they thought these kids just weren't really worth Jesus' time. Or maybe they thought that Jesus' focus and attention would be better spent elsewhere, not with these children. So we, we don't ultimately know, but whatever the reason is, the disciples' rebuke of these parents is viewed unfavorably by Jesus. He says that the disciples should not hinder or prevent the children from coming to him. And the reason that he gives is because the kingdom of God belongs to children. Jesus is not saying the disciples should just let them through so that he can bless them the way that the parents wanted, but ultimately so that these kids could come to the one who is God's Messiah, who brought God's kingdom, so that the kids could come into and receive God's kingdom. For Jesus says, anyone who wishes to receive God's kingdom must do so like a child. Otherwise, they cannot enter the kingdom. Now, this would have been surprising to the disciples because, remember, children were looked down upon in society. They had no voice in society. So how could they be the example of how one is supposed to receive God's kingdom? But no matter how much the disciples may have been surprised, they and ultimately we need to figure out what this means because Jesus says that you will never enter into the kingdom of God any other way. Luke is the only gospel writer, so the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they share this story. But Luke is the only one that 
talks about people bringing infants to Jesus. Now, I think this helps to further drive home the point that Jesus is making, that when he says that you have to receive the kingdom of God like a child. Because when people read and interpret and talk about this passage, it's often pointed out that children are humble. They recognize the ways that they need the the help of others, particularly their parents. Thus, it is often said that we need to receive the kingdom of God like a child with humility. Now, that is true. We do receive the kingdom of God with humility, but I don't think that that is entirely what Jesus is getting at in in this saying here. It does not seem that Jesus' blessing of the children is because they possess such virtues like humility, especially when you think of an infant. Babies don't humbly choose to trust their parents. They just need their parents. So it seems Jesus is not praising kids because they have things, because of things they have, like humility. Rather, he's praising them for things that they don't have. They don't have much at all. All they really have is need. They are entirely dependent on others. Thus, entrance into God's kingdom requires our need for God. The Pillar New Testament commentary says this, Jesus thus emphasizes in the strongest possible way that the kingdom is offered to the helpless, the needy, the powerless, and the weak. Because every single person needs God for absolutely everything, from life, breath, daily needs, salvation, everything. We don't rely on ourselves for these things. We need God. On our own, we are just helpless and needy and powerless and weak. We have no accolades. We have no achievements to point to to gain entry into God's kingdom. We only receive God's kingdom by acknowledging our neediness and weakness and looking to God to help us in all the ways that we are powerless to help ourselves. In Ezekiel chapter 16, God compares his people, Israel, to a newborn baby that was not cared for by her parents, but rather was placed into an open field and left. But God passes by this baby and has love and compassion for this helpless child and saves her and gives her life and makes her flourish. And in saying this in Ezekiel, ultimately this is saying this is what God did for his people. And this is what he does for all those who would recognize their helplessness and look to Jesus in faith to save them and to welcome them into God's kingdom. Because no one does good works or exhibits enough virtues to be welcomed into God's kingdom. We must all recognize that we can never do enough. And indeed, we are vulnerable and powerless and weak. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is offered to these people. The vulnerable and marginalized and outcasts. These are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. And they do so by simply coming to Jesus with their deep needs that they themselves cannot meet. Consistently throughout Luke's gospel, it's the ones who are overlooked by society that come to Jesus in faith, and they are the ones who receive God's kingdom. While those with power and wealth and authority, they don't come to Jesus. They don't receive God's kingdom because ultimately they don't think that they need Jesus. So this is how you and how I receive life in God's kingdom. We humbly admit our weakness and dependence on God. We have childlike faith that God will do everything to save us and give us life and flourishing in the kingdom. And so in our passage here, we see Jesus' unique 
care and love and concern for children. And so in seeing that, we should also think about the ways that we view children and how we are helping them to come to Jesus. Are we bringing them to Jesus like the parents in this story, they're bringing their kids to Jesus? Or are we preventing them from coming to Jesus like the disciples in the story? So here at Redeemer, we value kids. We love kids. We love having them here in service with us. We, we love having them be a part of our church body. While currently, for, for various reasons, we don't have our kids' ministry, Redeemer Kids, up and running on Sundays, but ultimately our philosophy of ministry as it pertains to kids' ministry is to teach children deep truths about Jesus, deep truths about the gospel, the Bible, in age-appropriate ways so that they can understand these truths about Jesus. We want them to come to faith in Christ as soon as possible. We want them to faithfully follow Jesus all of their lives. And for the time being, kids have joined us in service, and we love having kids here with us in service. They're not a distraction. They're not a bother. Nothing like that. We are glad that they are here. We want them to see us praying and worshiping and listening to the word of God. We want them to participate with us as, as much as they're able to um, in, in everything that we're doing in service. And so, kids, any kids in the room? Anyone? Kids, pause coloring, pause. I see one kid raising their hand. Pause what you're doing for one second and just look up here. Kids, I want you all to know we are glad that you're at Redeemer. We are glad that you are in service with us. And I want you guys to know that I was praying for you all this morning. I was praying that you would know how much Jesus loves you. I pray that you would know that he wants you to come near to him. So he, he wants to bless you. He wants to save you. And we want to do everything that we can here at Redeemer to help you know Jesus' love for you and to help you follow him. And so we are glad that you are here. And thank you for a few moments of your attention. You can go back to coloring. You can go back to whatever you are doing. Parents, look up here just for a second. Put down your coloring books. Put down your toys. Parents, we are glad that you are here. We are glad that you are here with your kids. And I was praying for you parents this morning too. Because we want to do everything that we can as a church to come alongside of you as you are raising your children, as you are discipling your children. Because we see here at Redeemer in Scripture that parents are the primary ones tasked by God to disciple their kids, to raise them to know and love and trust and obey God. But this is always done in the context of a faith community. It's done in the context of the church. And so we want to support you in this as you bring your children to Jesus. By, and by God's grace, see every child here at Redeemer come to know Jesus in faith and welcomed into the kingdom of God and follow Jesus every single day for the rest of their lives. So we want to love and care for and disciple our kids here at Redeemer. We want to care for the children of Stillwater as a church. We want to bless and serve the kids here at Will Rogers Elementary. We want to try and care for and meet the needs of kids here in Stillwater with all the various needs that they have. We wanted to do so in the love of Jesus Christ, pointing others to Christ so that they might come to know him by faith and be welcomed into God's kingdom. So receiving life in God's kingdom means recognizing that we are helpless and powerless and are entirely dependent on God. We put our faith and trust in him and he saves us. This offer, this offer of salvation, of entrance into God's kingdom is open to everyone. 
We all need Jesus. And so if you have not come to Jesus in faith, in childlike faith, then I encourage you, I implore you today, come to Jesus. He is loving and gracious and kind, and there is life in the kingdom of God. So in our our first story, we've seen children at this time in history. They were very, very low on the ladder of society. In our next story, we're going to see a rich ruler who is much, much higher up on that same societal ladder. So let's look at the next story. Luke 18, and we'll start with 18 through 23. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So after seeing little children coming to Jesus, we see a rich religious ruler approach him. This man was possibly a leader in the local synagogue and comes to Jesus with a respectful and earnest question, as far as we can tell. He starts off calling Jesus good teacher and then asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. And so the ruler was actually doing something uncommon in calling Jesus good because Jewish people at this time, they would call God good. They would call the Hebrew scriptures good, but they would not call rabbis good. So the fact that he's calling Jesus good seems to suggest that the ruler respects Jesus, that he's asking a genuine question of Jesus. He's not trying to bait him in any sort of way. So before Jesus responds, he asks why the ruler is calling him good, because only God is good. Now, he doesn't disagree with the ruler's assessment that he is indeed good. But in his response, Jesus redirects the focus to the divine standard of goodness, God himself. Now, this could be to highlight the the fact that the ruler is approaching a man who is not only good, but is also God. Or it could be to help reframe the ruler's question because in asking the question, the ruler kind of reveals that he has an inadequate understanding of salvation. For this is what he's asking when he's asked how to inherit eternal life. He's, He's asking, how is one saved? But he reveals his inadequate understanding when he says, what must I do to inherit salvation. The ruler believes inheriting eternal life depends on one's work. Now, this ultimately would not be an uncommon Jewish understanding at this time, but it was inadequate. And this misunderstanding is highlighted all the more by Jesus' words in the previous story when he says we must receive the kingdom of God like a child, because that is how one is saved, receiving God's forgiveness and salvation, not working for or doing or earning anything for salvation. But since the, the religious ruler, he's kind of set the criteria of the conversation, Jesus answers and tells him what he must do, which is that he should perfectly obey the commandments in the Old Testament law, and that is how he receives eternal life. And Jesus quotes from the Ten Commandments. But he goes on to list only five of the Ten Commandments. And curiously enough, he only mentions commandments from the second half of the Ten Commandments. And these commandments are the ones that have to do with our relationship to other people. The first half of the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship to and love for God. 
So it seems apparent that Jesus, in doing this, is maybe highlighting the fact that this man's love for God was not as stellar as maybe he thought. Jesus says, don't commit adultery, don't murder, steal, or bear false witness in honor your parents. The ruler says that he has obeyed all of these things since he was young. And interestingly enough, Jesus, he doesn't push back. He doesn't disagree. So it's kind of reasonable to conclude that this man lives a relatively righteous lifestyle. He's not perfect, of course. Nobody's perfect. But his efforts at keeping the law and the commandments are commendable. However, Jesus knows this man's heart and sees that there are things that he lacks. For the ruler was extremely rich. And his riches, his wealth, had a hold of his heart. He couldn't bear to part with his wealth. And the reality is, is that if there is something that is too unbearable in our lives to part with, it is precisely that thing that the Lord will call us to give up in following him. For Jesus deserves complete, wholehearted devotion and allegiance. And sometimes when Jesus does this, it can feel cruel for him to ask us to give up certain things in following him. But Jesus ultimately asks us to do this so that he can give us something better, which is himself. In Mark's account of this story, it says that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and he loved him before he tells him to go and sell everything that he had. Jesus called him to give away all of his wealth because of his great love for him. You see, Jesus knows how money can have a stranglehold on our hearts. How money can make us slaves to it. It can so easily become an idol in our lives. And for this man, this ruler, it had become an idol in his life. And idols, they always take from us. They never give. They're like poison in that the more we drink, the more it steals our life away from us. So in asking the ruler to sell all that he had, Jesus is loving him and both trying to save him from the harmful effects of his idolatry as well as give the ruler true joy and satisfaction in Christ alone. This is why Jesus says what he says next in verses 24 and 25. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus, he's using hyperbole. He's using intentional exaggeration and talking about a camel going through the eye of a needle, ultimately to highlight the pitfalls of money. Jesus, he's already warned us about money in previous passages in Luke. But I think in a unique way, this story highlights the warnings about money all the more because in previous passages, money is kind of tied to unrighteousness. But the rich ruler in today's passage was living a relatively righteous lifestyle, and yet he still could not give up his money. He genuinely was asking Jesus how one inherited eternal life, but his heart could not part with his worldly wealth, even though Jesus was offering him eternal riches in the kingdom of God. Ultimately, following Jesus requires sacrifice, it requires denying ourselves and taking up our crosses and following him every single day. And this is what Jesus was asking of the ruler and what he was offering was treasure in heaven. But as Jesus has said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The ruler's heart and treasure were wrapped up in his worldly wealth. But in love, Jesus was trying to set this ruler free from the bondage that he was in. He was trying to give him eternal treasure, 
And that comes through recognizing our need for God and our utter and complete dependence on him. It means receiving salvation through faith, not working for it or doing anything to earn it. It means denying ourselves in the things and ways of this world to follow Jesus. And in this, we will inherit eternal life and experience the blessings of God's kingdom. So in applying this to our own lives, are there things in your life that you cannot imagine parting with? The ruler cannot imagine his life without money, and he chose his wealth, his money over Jesus. I think when people read this story, and it's understandable, we often ask, well, does this command apply to me today? Do I also have to sell all that I have to follow Jesus? And I'll say, no, this command to sell all that we have does not apply to everyone here in this room today. No one else in the Bible receives this command to sell all that they have. And I think when we ask that question and we hear that response, there's kind of a, okay, a sigh of relief, right? I mean, I, I know that's the case for me, but why are we always so quick to make sure that Jesus isn't calling us to sell all that we have? Why are we so quick to add qualifiers to this command of Jesus? What if he was calling us to sell all that we had to follow him? Would we do it? If we are quick to find a way so that this command to sell all that we have doesn't apply to us today, then maybe we're no better off than the rich ruler. Maybe our hearts are just as idolatrous as his. Maybe we need to sit down and spend some serious time considering our heart's relationship to money and possessions, or comfort and entertainment, or work and achievements, power and prestige, approval, control, relationships, family, all sorts of things. Maybe if we were in the ruler's shoes, we would have made the exact same decision and clung to our, our heart idol, whatever that heart idol might be, rather than giving it up to follow Jesus. If there's something in your life that you feel you cannot give up or else life doesn't have meaning if you give that up, something that you can't give up or else you feel you don't have value and worth if that's not involved in your life, if you have something like that in your life, then the Lord wants to set you free from that idol. He wants to replace it with himself. He loves you and is seeking to bless you, to give you life. He's not seeking to deprive you of anything because there's fullness of life and joy in following him. And so after saying these things, the people who heard it, ultimately they're amazed, it says. Verses 26 through 30. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So when Jesus says this, the people are shocked because it was a common belief at this time that wealth and riches ultimately were signs of God's blessing, of God's favor. So if rich people who have apparently the blessing and favor of God through their wealth can't be saved, then nobody can be saved. Rather than highlighting the impossibility of any particular person or group like the rich or anything like that to be saved, this is getting at the impossibility of anyone to be saved. But as Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
Salvation has always been about God's free gift of grace, not the ability of any person to work for it or earn it on their own. It's impossible to be good enough, rich enough, skilled enough, anything like that, to ever be saved. Salvation is entirely a work of God, not us. And God wants to save every person and bless them with eternal treasures in Christ because he is perfectly loving. All that we must do is receive his offer of salvation in faith and follow Jesus. We must deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him every single day. After hearing what Jesus was asking of the rich ruler to give up everything that he had, the disciples are wondering about their own lives as they had left everything to follow Jesus. Now, they were still trying to figure out. They were trying to understand what it meant to follow Jesus, what it meant to live as citizens in God's kingdom. So Peter, he speaks up kind of for all the disciples. He was kind of often the spokesman of all of the disciples. And he speaks up and highlights that they had left homes, they had left families, they had left everything in order to follow Jesus. So what then for them? And Jesus responds and says that anyone who has left home and family and jobs and resources to follow Jesus will be provided for in this lifetime and will have eternal life. Because ultimately it is costly to follow Jesus. It requires devoting our hearts entirely to him and being willing to forsake anything that gets in the way of us following him. But Jesus assures us that anything in this world that is given up for the sake of the kingdom of God will be more than given back to the disciples in the form of blessing in this life and then in the next life, in heaven, eternal life. And so in this story, Luke, more than the other gospels, he highlights giving up relationships to follow Jesus. He talks about giving up wife and brothers and parents and children to follow Jesus. Love for God and devotion to Jesus take precedence over every earthly relationship. And for some believers, choosing to follow Jesus means being disowned by their family. Now, Jesus saying this in this particular cultural context was uniquely challenging where familial relationships were so strong. And this is true for many believers in different parts of the world that choosing to follow Jesus means that they are disowned by their family. But Jesus promises an eternal family for everyone who comes to him in faith, an eternal family in the kingdom of God. For those who have put faith in Jesus and are in God's family, we are blessed with a spiritual family whose ties ultimately run even deeper than blood. For this family will be united together for all of eternity. We will always be brothers and sisters in Christ. And during this lifetime, we benefit from these familial relationships as we are blessed by having spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers, spiritual siblings, and spiritual children whom we lead to Jesus and encourage them in their growth as disciples as they follow Jesus. And this is an encouragement to us all. In the church, we are family, and our bonds run deeper than blood. We seek to love each other as Christ has loved us. We seek to care for and serve one another with the strength and the resources that God supplies us. We seek to always be there for one another, supporting each other throughout all the ups and downs of life and bearing one another's burdens. This family is an eternal family, is an immense blessing to all of us. Jesus is telling us that whatever sacrifices we make for him in the kingdom of God, God will be sure to bless us and to provide for us. 
So people have always missed Jesus. People have always misunderstood what it means to come into the kingdom of God and to live for God's kingdom. But this is life in the kingdom of God. To receive salvation, eternal life, through humble childlike faith in Jesus by recognizing that we are utterly helpless and powerless and weak and we need God to rescue us. We are entirely dependent on him for salvation and everything. This is impossible for us to do on our own through good works, but it is possible with God. We live with wholehearted devotion to Christ in all things, and we give up anything that is getting in the way of us following Jesus. This, of course, requires sacrifice. But in doing so, Jesus says that we are storing up treasures in heaven. And we use everything that God has given to us in this life for the sake of God's kingdom. Just as he called the rich ruler to give everything up and be generous to the poor. We are to be generous with the money and resources that God has blessed us with. Giving to the poor, helping out those who are in need. And we get rid of anything that would threaten to capture our hearts more than Jesus. And as we make these sacrifices, God will bless us. He will provide for us the resources and relationships and community that we need. And we have the gift of the church, the family of God, to walk with us in this life. And together we will journey together toward eternal life, where we will be in the presence of Christ forever. And so if you have not received this eternal life through faith in Christ, I encourage you, look to Jesus. Put your faith in him today. Do not try to work for your salvation, but freely receive his grace. Receive his salvation through faith. Recognize that we are all weak and helpless and powerless. We need Jesus. Be willing to give up anything and everything, the things of this world to follow Jesus, but rest assured he will provide for you in this lifetime and he will give you eternal life. And that whatever sacrifice you make for the sake of the kingdom of God, Jesus will replace it with something better. He will replace it with himself. This is the hope that we have in Christ. This is what it means to have life in God's kingdom, to live the life in God's kingdom every single day. So may we rejoice by God's grace and his kindness. He has loved us with an everlasting love and saved us by grace through faith, not works, into this kingdom. And may we respond with wholehearted devotion and allegiance as we give up the things of this world that ultimately do not satisfy, do not meet our deepest needs, and follow Jesus who does. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that in both of these stories, there is just the strong and open invitation from you, Jesus, to all of us to come to you. God, whether we are a helpless baby or a rich ruler with power and authority, the invitation stands for all of us to come to you, to come to you with our weakness, with our weariness, with our helplessness, God, to come to you with our need for forgiveness and salvation. God, that's all we have to do. We just come to you with our need and we look to you in faith and you give us forgiveness and salvation. You give us life. You give us the blessings of the kingdom of God, Lord. Blessings that we get to experience and enjoy even now in this lifetime. And Lord, blessings that we get to experience and enjoy for all of eternity as we together, as the people of God, get to dwell with you for all of eternity. 
So Lord, help us to see what it truly means to live life in the kingdom. Help us to consistently respond in childlike faith. God, and show us the things in our lives, the things that our hearts are more inclined to chase after, to love more than you. God, and give us the grace that we need to lay those things down to follow you, Lord, because ultimately those things don't satisfy us. God, but you do satisfy us. You meet our deepest needs. You give us all that our hearts actually long for. May we be encouraged by that, Lord, and may we live each day boldly for the sake of the kingdom, being ambassadors for Christ, being citizens of the kingdom, and in word and deed, communicating the truth and values of the kingdom to the world around us so that more people might experience life in the kingdom. God, we thank you, and we love you, and we pray all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.